Brothers and sisters, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And while you were doing so, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. As you remember, we took a break last week from working through 1 Timothy because we had Pastor Eric in town and he, he led us through that evangelism conference. But this morning, um, we are going to get back into 1 Timothy and we find ourselves in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And so I am going to read in your hearing, beginning in verse 1 through verse 7. He who has hears to hear, let him hear what Christ would say to the church. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You may be seated. Brothers and sisters, there is a great need in our day for godly leadership. Men who would, to use the language of Psalm 2, men who would serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Those are the men that we need. And, and those are the men that we need in government. Proverbs 29.2 warns, When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. And so we pray, do we not? We pray for revival and reformation and repentance. And we do so for our land. But I hope not just for our land. If we are Christians, then we will also pray for revival and reformation and repentance in our own hearts and in our own homes and in our own church. So let me ask you, what will one of the evidences be of our prayers being answered? In other words, what will revival and reformation and repentance look like? And the answer is, it will look like God giving us godly leaders. This is true in government, this is true in the home, and this is true in the church. That is the need of the hour, brothers and sisters. It is godly leaders. Now, as we turn our attention to 1 Timothy chapter 3 this morning, as you might imagine, that is our focus. We're right in the middle of a specific unit in 1 Timothy, one that began all the way back in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. And the context of this unit is nothing less than the gathering of the local church, what we are doing right now. 
And what Paul is telling Timothy, what the Holy Spirit is revealing to us through sacred scripture, is how important it is, how in need the local church is when it comes to godly leaders. I would remind you, don't forget the entire thrust of this letter. The church, you will remember, has been entrusted with the treasure of all treasures. The the very gospel of God, the message of God, right? Of, Of his glory and of his grace. But false teaching has diluted that glorious message. The diamond of Christ crucified for sinners has been subtly replaced with the cubic zirconia of how you can be a better you. So Paul writes to encourage Timothy to remind him that this faith, this diamond, that it is worth fighting for. Which means, and here we're going to try to set chapter 3 in its greater context, the, the context of the entire letter, the main bulwark against false teaching in a church is leaders who contend faithfully for the faith. And those leaders are called elders. But to be fair, they're not always called elders, are they? In fact, you will look in vain in our passage this morning for the word elder. So what gives? What am I trying to pull here? Well, here's the deal. And I recognize that depending upon your background, your tradition, your denomination, there could be a whole lot of baggage here. But just bear with me. The New Testament uses a couple of words interchangeably. Or to say it another way, these different words, they all refer to the same office. To just sort of go down and dirty, we're talking about the the same job in the church, if we want to put it like that. So for example, one word is the word overseer. It's it's right here in our passage. You find it in verse 1. We are told the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer. And in the very next verse we read, therefore... An overseer must be, and and he lays out these qualifications. Another word is that ever-popular word, pastor. We, We say that word, we hear that word all the time in our Christian circles, don't we? But you should know, and this is depending upon the English translation that you have, that word pastor might not ever appear in your Bible at all. The same is true of another word. Again, this is depending upon the translation that you have. But another word is the word bishop. Still another word, and this is the one that is far and away most frequently used in the New Testament, and that is the word elder. But again, what I want you to see is that all of these words, overseer, pastor, bishop, elder, in the New Testament, they all refer to the same group of guys. It's it's the same thing. So think of our passages in front of us. As I said, you have the word overseer used in verse 1 and 2. But then over in 1 Timothy 5.17, what do we read? Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. And you go, well, who are the elders, Paul? And and what you quickly discover is that 1 Timothy speaks of both overseers and elders, but it does so referring to the same 
guys. Consider Paul's letter to Titus. And here you might just turn over there because it's, it's right next door. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. In Titus chapter 1, verse 5, we are told why Paul dispatched Titus to Crete. I'll pause because I still hear the sound of good Reformed Baptist air conditioning. Those pages flipping. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Why is Titus there? So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. So what's Titus's job according to verse 5? Appoint elders. Then, two verses later, verse 7 now, what does Paul say? For an overseer must be above reproach. So verse 5, elders. Verse 7, overseers. These are used interchangeably. Paul does the exact same thing in Acts chapter 20. If you want to head over there to the left, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, and I want you to look at verse 17 and verse 28. Acts chapter 20, verse 17 and verse 28. We are told in Acts chapter 20, verse 17, that Paul called the Verse 17, the elders of the church. He's calling the elders of the church to come and to meet with him. And then if you look down at verse 28, Paul, talking to these same elders, he exhorts them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So here's the point, church. The New Testament knows of only one governing or ruling or authoritative body when it comes to the local church. And that one ruling, governing, authoritative body is the elders, overseers, pastors. And, and, and we're talking about the same group. The New Testament uses all of these terms interchangeably. And it is these men who have been entrusted with the task of overseeing or, or supervising the, the spiritual life or the condition of God's people. It, it is these men who have been entrusted with that most high and noble calling. But I want you to notice that it's not just any men. These elders or overseers or pastors, they have to be a particular type of men. And so the question that we should be asking at this point is, well, that's fine, but what sets them apart? What makes these men different than these men? What sort of qualifications must they meet? If I can put it this way, what are the requirements? And so based upon our passage this morning, let me share with you six requirements. Six requirements for elders in the church. The first requirement, and perhaps the most often overlooked is desire. It's desire. The elders must have a desire for this work. You can see this quite clearly in verse 1. We read the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. You see, this man, he aspires to the office. And that word aspires, it has a sense of stretching out, of reaching out, of striving for something. 
Picture the little kid on the stool in the kitchen, reaching out with all of his might, just trying to get to that cookie jar. Little Johnny, he really wants a cookie. Well, the elder, he too must long for it, desire it, want it. He should be stretching out, reaching for it. But unlike Johnny, not in a selfish way. We're not talking about an ungodly, sort of ugly ambition where a man wants to be up front, where a man wants to throw his weight around, where a man wants some sort of notoriety or recognition. No, that's, that's not what we're talking about. In fact, that is a dreadful spirit, and we should just say right now that that is a spirit that will end in that man's demise and most likely the church's demise. But... According to verse 1, the man must desire this nonetheless. He, he must sense the confirmation of the Spirit in his soul. It should be something that he wants to do. He shouldn't be like the five-year-old who learns how to swim by getting tossed into the pool by dad. That little boy, he's clutching, he's terrified. He, he doesn't want to get thrown into the pool. Church, if that's the attitude of the elder, not wanting to be here, not wanting to do this, but I guess I have to because no one else will. If that's the attitude, then it will be like termites to a house. What Scripture tells us is that the man of God, the elder, he has to have a genuine desire for this work. There's no twisting of his arm behind his back. There's no arm wrestling at all. It's something he wants to do. Let me mention a second requirement now. And this, if desire was the most often overlooked, then this is the most important. And it's character. It's character. And to really press this home, I'm going to combine eight different words or phrases found in our passage, and I want to put all of them under this heading of character. So, so bear with me. I don't, I don't want to lose you. Four starters, verse 2 tells us that an overseer must be above reproach. Or, as the J.B. Phillips translation puts it, of blameless reputation. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that the elder must be perfect, it doesn't mean that he is sinless. It doesn't mean that he walks on water. But it does mean that he is godly. To be above reproach means to be free from any blemishes of character or conduct. It's the idea that an elder is the kind of man who no one suspects of wrongdoing or immorality. We might say something like this today. To be above reproach means that this man has no skeletons in his closet. And you should notice that this idea of being above reproach is not a suggestion. This requirement is not something that we can waffle on. We can't compromise. Because verse 2 says, Therefore an elder must be. 
Not might be, not if it works out, not if it all lines up correctly, but he must be this way. There is no wiggle room in God's word. The point is, the character of the man is of central and critical importance, which means that if the man is not above reproach, then the man, no matter what, is not elder material. It's just as simple as that. He might be the greatest Bible teacher you've ever heard. He's not qualified to do what God has said that he must do. In addition, he must be, and you'll find this in verse 2, sober-minded. That is to say, the elder is a man that has good judgment. He's cool-headed. He's balanced. He's wise. He's not the kind of guy who has sort of knee-jerk reactions to things. He doesn't make haphazard decisions. No, he, he thinks clearly. Still thinking about an elder's character, verse 2 says he must also be self-controlled. That's one word in Greek, and what it means is that this man is in control of himself. He's prudent. He's thoughtful. Let me think of it this way. He's not at the whim of his fleshly appetites. He's not buying in to the so-called wisdom of this world. He, he doesn't need to put himself in a straitjacket to protect himself. No, he, he's disciplined. He doesn't just fly off of the handle. This man is, to use some old English, he's temperate. The elder must also, and yes, we are still in verse 2, he must also be respectable. It's the idea that his life is well-ordered and well-mannered. You, you look at this man and you hold him in high regard. And you do so because the way that he dresses, the way that he carries himself, the way that he speaks, he is a man who is worthy of admiration. Again, he is... Respectable. Continuing to reflect upon what Scripture says about an elder's character, he must not, now, verse 3, be a drunkard. Why, you ask? Well, think of it this way. Because a man who is inebriated is no longer what? Sober-minded, self-controlled, or respectable. Right? Rather than drinking from the word of life and being nourished by Christ, this man is drowning in alcohol. And such a man is not fit for the office of elder. I should also say, beloved, that if a man is a drunkard, he's just not, not qualified to be an elder. He also might not be a Christian at all. And, and that is because... While drinking alcohol is celebrated in Scripture, being a drunkard is not. In fact, being a drunkard is flatly condemned. Scripture also warns an elder mustn't be, verse 3, violent. He's not supposed to be a brawler. He's not picking fights and throwing punches and always looking for a reason to retaliate. Instead, he is to be gentle, we are told. It's the idea of being gracious, kindly, forbearing, considerate, magnanimous, 
genial. In a related vein, the elder must, middle of verse 3, not be quarrelsome. Literally, without battle. In other words, the elder isn't looking for trouble. He's actually a peacemaker. It's true, when church discipline issues arrive and when wolves show their teeth, the elder will hold the line, of course. But he doesn't find joy in dead bodies and bruised souls. He's not a quarrelsome man. Then the last idea under this requirement of character, the elder is, end of verse 3, not a lover of money. In other words, he's not gripped by it. It doesn't hold his heart. He's not captivated by the latest tech gadget or enthralled with this, that, or the other thing. He's content. More than content, he's joyful. And he's, he's joyful because he is committed to the reality that his reward is in heaven and that the work of shepherding brings with it many blessings. Many which cannot be deposited into a bank or put on a scale. Now, with all that being said, and I'll, I'll circle back to this in a moment, but I can't help but say something here. Do you as a church, do you see how important character is? Do you see, at least according to God's word, how non-negotiable this is? Character counts. And that is especially true when it comes to those who would lead Christ's church. The single most important thing about any elder, overseer, pastor, bishop is his character. What sort of man is he? That is where Scripture puts the accent, and that is where we should as well. Now, let's press on and look at the third requirement. We've seen his desire. We've seen his character. What about his home? His home. And as we're thinking about an elder's home, Scripture tells us three things about it. It should have one wife in it, some kids in it, and the door should be open. When it comes to the wife, verse 3 says, he must be the husband of, and the phrase is, one wife. And if you know anything about this particular passage of Scripture, you will know that the idea here, or what is intended, it has been vigorously debated. What does Paul mean by the husband of one wife? And four views generally rise to the surface. Some think an elder must be married no matter what. But such a view would exclude men like Paul and Jesus himself from holding the office of elder. And I will grant, I find that a bit peculiar. Others argue that Paul is excluding polygamy. And while, yeah, polygamy is something that should be excluded, polygamy wasn't widespread at all in the Greco-Roman world at this time. So that view doesn't seem to make much sense. Another option is that what Paul means here is that an elder must have one wife and the same wife throughout the entire course of his life. And while that, at least initially, is more plausible, that view does seem to rub up against Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, where he actually endorses remarriage after the death 
of a spouse. So what that leaves is the fourth and final view, which I think makes the most sense given all that we know. When Paul says that the elder must be the husband of one wife, what he's driving at is that the elder must be a one-woman man. In other words, he is to be completely devoted to his wife so that all of his affections belong to her. He loves her and he cherishes her and he lays down his life for her and he walks in purity with her. That's that's a long way of saying he's a one-woman man. Another part of the elder's home that can't be missed, besides his wife whom he loves, is his children. The end of verse 4 tells us that his children are submissive. And while I don't think that means that the kids of an elder must be Christians, let's remember that that God controls salvation. That's not something you or I can can manufacture. That's God's job. But nonetheless, the elder, he is, verse 4, to manage his own household well. That is, depending on the age, of course, his kids should respect him. When, when daddy comes home from work, they should light up with joy. And when he gives commands or instructions, they should comply. Maybe to just sort of uh, turn the screw a little bit, The elder, he must take a hands-on approach in his family, not a sort of passive, hands-off approach that so many men take today. And you'll notice that Paul quickly makes a connection between the home and the church. Because he adds in verse 5, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? You see the connection? If this man doesn't have his eye on his family, and if he doesn't watch out for them and love them and lead them and care for them, well, then how on earth is he going to do those things for the church of God? Right? If he's utterly passive and sits on his hands and doesn't lead at home, then how is he ever going to do what Christ has called him to do in the church? And of course, Paul's point is he won't. He won't. Which means, and please hear this, while a man's wife and kids can never qualify a man for ministry, you'd better believe they can't disqualify him. No matter how good a Bible teacher he is, no matter how many degrees he has hanging on the wall, no matter how smart he is, no matter how much of a sort of personality he is, no matter how much he sort of captures the attention of the congregation, please hear this. If the man's home is a wreck, he has no business leading God's people. The man is disqualified from ministry. Now, the last thing about the elder's home is the front door, which must be open. And I'm saying that because of the middle of verse 2. Because we are told that the elder must be hospitable, literally a lover of strangers. So the elder isn't one who's holed up somewhere in a green room and no one knows where he is or where he lives or has his phone number. You can never get a hold of him. If you want to meet with him, you have to schedule months and months out. You have to go through the secretary who has to vet you. Oh, the elder is one whose door is open to those in the community and especially to those in the church. He welcomes people and families and neighbors around his table. And he feeds them. 
And he listens to them. And he loves them. And he cares for them. And he counsels them. He's not a celebrity that reluctantly signs autographs. He's a shepherd who truly loves his sheep. And if he truly loves them, then his home will be open to them. Moving on now. The fourth requirement of the elder, if you're keeping up, is his duty. His duty. What is he to do? Well, he must be, end of verse 2, able to teach. And what Paul means here, and this is fleshed out by the rest of 1 Timothy as well as 2 Timothy and Titus, is that he must be skilled in teaching Christian doctrine. You see, you see, church, the elder is a man who knows God's word. He is immersed in it, persuaded by it, lives in accord with it, and is a lover of it. To him, he echoes the sound of the psalmist who says that the word of God is more valuable than gold, yes, much fine gold. To the elder, the word of God is sweeter to his taste than honeycomb. But you have to see that's not enough. He must also be a faithful teacher of it. The elder must not just be gripped by the word, not just mastered by scripture, but he must be able to faithfully communicate that word to others. He he must have the gift of preaching and teaching. And if you were to ask why, well, the great English Puritan John Owen would answer, the first and principal duty of a pastor is to feed the flock by diligent preaching of the word. And that preaching, those sermons, brothers and sisters, they should not be composed of fluff. They should not be composed of flattery. It should not be spiritual advice. It should not be a TED talk with a Bible. But as Spurgeon has warned, these sermons should have real teaching in them. And their doctrine, Spurgeon said, should be solid, substantial, and abundant. Amen. Hear me well, church. Able to teach does not mean, I repeat it, does not mean that some slick guy who is really charismatic can use a Bible verse as a jumping off point to talk about what he wants to talk about. That is not teaching God's word. To teach God's word is to be so captivated by the word of God that you labor to say what God has said. Nothing more and nothing less. That is what pastors do. Their main job is to feed the flock. And while cotton candy might be fun once or twice a year at a fair or something, you cannot live on it. You must have meat and potatoes. And it is the job of the pastor to set the table. Now, I told you there were six requirements. Let me mention the fifth now, and that is maturity. Maturity. Verse 6 warns us, warns us, that this man must not be a recent convert. You should know, we get our English word neophyte from the Greek here. What is nepotism, you ask? Well, It's when those who are in power give jobs to family or friends or relatives who are not qualified for the job at all. And you and I, we would rightly shake our head at such things. 
If nothing else, that is the sin of favoritism, right? Well, here, the word that Paul uses, it means something like new growth or newly planted. So Paul is saying, you have to be very careful, church. The elder mustn't be too green. He needs to be seasoned, mature, experienced, qualified. This tree needs to have some rings on it, right? This man has to walk with a limp. There needs to be quite a few candles on his spiritual birthday cake. In short, he can't be a new Christian. And you might think to yourself, but, but don't you understand? New Christians, that's where all the, the vibrancy is. That's where the energy is. New Christians, those you have to kind of lock up in a cage because they don't know what they're doing, but they're going to do it anyway. Should, shouldn't you want these guys at the front? Paul answers in the middle of verse 6, no. Why? Because he, he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. I wonder, do you see what Scripture is saying here? It's warning us. It's more than possible for a man in leadership to get a fat head. To think that he actually belongs. To think that Christ's church needs him. Brothers and sisters, to think that Christ himself needs such a man. And those men, they are swollen with pride. And you have to know, brothers and sisters, that pride is the devil's playground. So this man, the elder, according to Scripture, he needs to have some experience. He needs some bruises. He needs some maturity. And while it is true that time does not always equal maturity, it is true that maturity always takes time. So be patient, church. Be patient with prospective elders. They need to grow as Christians before they can be leaders in the church. The sixth and final requirement Scripture gives us here for the elder comes in verse 7, and that is reputation. Reputation. Or, to use Paul's own words, again, verse 7, we are told that the elder must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. And while this might initially sound strange to some of us, at least at some level, because according to this passage, the elder must be well thought of by outsiders. That is to say, when it comes to the unbelieving world, when it comes to this man's unbelieving neighbors and co-workers, Scripture requires that this man have a good reputation. Even unbelievers, those outside of the church, they should be able to see, they should be able to recognize, this is a man of integrity. They might not be followers of Christ, but they still are forced to confess, by the way, that this man leads his life and runs his house, that this is a man of deep and genuine character. And it must be this way, because we all know to varying degrees, how easy it is to come to church with a plastic smile, right? It is very easy to look like a Christian right now, 
It's altogether different to look like a Christian on a Monday morning or a Saturday afternoon. And so Scripture requires not just that this man have a good reputation among the brothers, but also among the world. This is because the leaders of Christ's church aren't just supposed to live lives worthy of the gospel before Christians, but we are to adorn the gospel before a needy and broken world. So with all of this in your mind, with those six requirements before you, let me just really quickly pause and make a comment. Do you see how remarkably unremarkable all of this is? I'm serious. So often when people think of leaders or elders or pastors in a church, I think that they sort of get this picture, this idea in their mind. And I want to submit to you that very often this idea that we have of pastors or elders, it is often misguided. To be more specific, generally people have two ideas of a pastor. On the one hand, he is like super spiritual, right? So the elder has a halo over his head. He levitates in the corner. His house is never dirty. His wife plays the piano and his kids only speak in old King James English. But brothers and sisters, this is a caricature, right? We, we don't find any of that in our passage this morning. In fact, if you go back through on your own this afternoon, and I want to encourage you to do so, and you look at these so-called requirements, you know what you will discover? How very ordinary they are. you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. Right, so, so again, the, the questions tend to revolve around, well, can he organize well? Does he have a background or a degree in, in business or management? 
How many, how many books has he published? How many followers does he have on social media? And you, you might sort of smirk at some of these things, but you have to understand that I have actually met with men, and these are the questions that are discussed. I've been to enough pastor's conferences and pastor's lunches and pastor stuff where this is the things that are, just, that are talked about. These are sort of the defining marks. And church, I would simply submit to you that while all of that is stuff that perhaps many pastoral search committees are looking for, it's entirely absent when it comes to God's Word. Because what matters, according to Scripture, is character. This is the emphasis of verses 1 through 7. The focus isn't even so much on gifting as much as it is on character. Right? There's really only one thing in all of these verses about gifting, and that is able to teach. The rest is about character. Does this man have a track record of being self-controlled? Is he respectable? Is he consumed with the world and money? How does he treat his wife? Do his kids genuinely look forward to seeing him and do they obey him? Is this man an example of what a mature Christian looks like? This is what Paul's talking about. Now, don't get me wrong. Must this man be able to handle God's word? And the answer, of course, is yes. But my point is, the elder must meet all of these requirements, not just that little one in the middle of verse 2 about being able to teach. Not just the one about, well, is he a varsity-level Bible teacher? Fine. But does he have a proven character? And I would submit to you that that is the single most important thing about an elder. To which I hope you would respond, yes, pastor, but why is that? And that leads us to the last point that we want to make, and that is this. Elders must be worthy of emulation. Elders must be worthy of emulation. That is to say, the elders, the pastors, whatever you want to call them, they are to be a model of faithful Christian maturity and discipleship. The elder should be able to say with a clean conscience what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The elders of the church, the pastors of the church, they should be able to say, follow me. Do as I do. Come, this is what it looks like to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. I made this comment a few minutes ago about these elder requirements and, and how they're not really all that extraordinary. You want to know the reason for that? The reason that the requirements to be an elder are not over-the-top extraordinary is because you, as a Christian, should be striving to cultivate these same virtues in your own life. In other words, while all you as individual Christians are not called to be elders in terms of office, you are called to be elders in terms of character. So, let me just ask you. Christian, 
Should you strive to be above reproach? Christian, should you be hospitable? Brother, sister, should you be sober-minded and not violent but gentle and not quarrelsome and not a lover of money? Or, or do you think, oh, no, 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 no. I don't have to be above reproach. I can live like the devil. I don't ever have to open my home. I can be a drunkard. I can be rude. I can be a jerk. I'm just a regular Christian. No. The elders, they should model this for you. The elders should be an embodiment of Christian maturity. Not so that you can walk way behind them, but so that you can walk alongside them. Brothers and sisters, so that you can walk alongside the elders as the elders point you to Christ. You see, that's what the loves and the lips and the lives of the elders are to do. Pastor Justin and myself, we are to point you as Christians to the chief elder, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we are called to be your examples, but trust me, and if you've been here for about five minutes, you know this, we will fail you. We are not your Savior. We are not perfect. And so we point not to ourselves, but to Christ. We seek to shepherd you and oversee you and lead you and love you and care for you and counsel you, and we do that by saying, look to Christ. Rest in Him. Follow me only as I follow Christ. Put your hope and your trust in Jesus. And do that, Christian, because not me and not Justin and not anybody, but only Jesus is your Redeemer. He alone is the true shepherd. So as your under-shepherd, or rather as His under-shepherd, I would encourage you to settle for nothing less than Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we have so many needs, and so many are, are true and good and important. But our greatest need is to know Christ, to have our eyes open, to truly see Him and love Him, and so we pray that you would cause that spirit to be among us, a spirit in which we see Christ and we savor him. We pray, Father, for the elders of this church. Strengthen us to be the men that you have called us to be. Strengthen us to be the faithful models of what a Christian should be and should look like. And Lord, we pray that you would be faithful in this church to raise up other men. We pray for Dave. We pray for the coming months and what this congregation looks like, that you, that you would give us eyes to see and unity so that we would have other men who would step up in this position, who would desire it and who would have godly character and who would be faithful models for the sheep. We pray in all of this that the chief shepherd, that Christ himself would get all of the glory. We pray these things in his name. Amen.